0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a plan to protect drivers on I-10 from the danger of dust storms. Meet a scientist who explores the secret world of spiders and scorpions. How Cumbia has brought a new rhythm to downtown Tucson, and a story about the perils of being a king. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Dust storms can pose a variety of health risks, including being the cause of low visibility on routes like I-10, and that can cause auto accidents. This week on Arizona 360, host Lorraine Rivera looks into plans for a new early warning system that designers are hoping will save lives.
1: The Department of Transportation took a look at the area between Tucson and Phoenix, and specifically in that area between Picacho and and Casa Grande, And they looked at a few miles there where there have been quite a few collisions. Between 2000 and 2015, there were 1,200 collisions that the Arizona Department of Transportation attributed to severe dust storms. These are incidents that resulted in 40 fatalities in that 15-year span. The Department of Transportation decided something needed to be done. So they took a closer look at this.
0: Well, how is this early warning system actually going to function?
1: So the way this works is right now if you drive through that area you're going to see quite a bit of construction the department of transportation got a 54 million dollar federal grant they're widening the lanes they're fixing that s curve if many of you drive that direction you know exactly what i'm talking about they're also going to be putting in dust detection systems so there will be towers that have cameras that can measure the visibility of the dust storm that's coming that long range system can even track up to 40 miles away so Dot will be able to post warnings on the marquee signs that many of us see right now above the interstate.
0: Are there any other ways for them to get this information to drivers, though?
1: Sure, on our cell phones. We know that when we do have a severe storm that's headed toward us, that you'll often get that alert. That will be part of this uh, alert system component. In preparing for this week's show, we traveled to Phoenix to the National Weather Service, and we spoke with a meteorologist, Ken Waters, who explained that haboobs and severe dust storms have been part of our environment here in Arizona for a long time. And one of the factors that they're studying is that drought is what causes this.
2: What we we find when we look through time is it does come and go. It's kind of cyclical a little bit. Um, And a lot of feeling, a lot of the thought is that it's tied to drought. So when we have periods of drought,
0: it, it can lead to more dust storms.
1: This system is expected to be complete by the fall of 2019. If you drive Tucson to Phoenix right now, you'll see that there's plenty of activity going on. The expectation is that once the, the construction that you and I will be able to see from the ground is complete, they can actually start to put those towers up. We spoke with Tom Herman, a spokesman for the Arizona Department of Transportation, and he stresses that we can't predict all of our weather situations here in Arizona. But now that we know they're there, we can certainly prepare for them.
0: We can't stop a dust storm. If you look out in the desert out here, uh, the wind will blow, the dust will get in the air. We can't stop a dust storm. Well, we can do is give you the information as a driver so that you can pull aside and let the dust storm pass so you'll know what's ahead you can make the best decision for yourself to get off the roadway if you can pull off at an exit do that if you can't pull off as far as you can get off the roadway this is all about providing a safer environment for drivers between phoenix and tucson with or without this early detection system, what are some general safety tips that drivers should be aware of?
1: That's a great question, Mark. The Arizona Department of Transportation wants to stress their motto, pull aside, stay alive. And that's you pull over off the road as much as possible, turn off your lights, take your foot off the brake, and apply the parking brake and keep your seatbelt on in case there is a collision as a result of this. This is when it's low visibility and you're not comfortable moving forward. Another component of this is the variable speed limit signs. The speed limit will go from 75 down to as low as 35. And a law enforcement officer could actually cite someone if they're not following that, because at that point, the state has decided it's so dangerous, you must reduce your speed in order to continue moving.
0: Well, thank you for this report, Lorraine.
1: You're welcome, Mark. If anybody would like to see more from uh, Arizona Department of Transportation and National Weather Service, they'll be on this week's Arizona 360, Friday night at 8.30 on PBS6, also Sunday morning at 11.
0: And you can always find that programming online at azpm.org. As Steve Martin once said, let's get small. For more than 15 years, clinical microbiologist and naturalist Jillian Coles has been exploring a secret world that few dare to enter. Using macro photography, her knowledge of arachnid behavior, and some extreme patience, Coles has been capturing startling images from the private lives of creatures like spiders and scorpions. She's made many important discoveries about their courtship and mating, maternal care and social habits, as well as hunting and defense. Her new book, Amazing Arachnids, includes more than 750 striking photos that illustrate her detailed research. I asked Jillian Coles where her interest in getting small got started.
3: I've always liked little things. As a kid, if you need glasses because of being nearsighted you can see little stuff up close really well (laughs) you don't see far away things nearly as well so you tend to sort of focus in on little things macro photography is a wonderful doorway into a whole nother world it's kind of like Alice going down the rabbit hole and what you can capture in a photograph is stuff that you cannot see with your naked eye like a spitting spider in action With your naked eye, you cannot see that, but with the macro photography and with the magic of the flash, it'll stop motion and you can see something that you otherwise wouldn't be able to see.
0: Before our interview, you sent over about 15 photographs with detailed captions, which were extremely helpful to me to understand what I was looking at. And you talk about, for instance, in one case, a fishing spider and Uh, how the, the, in this case, the spider had captured a fish as large as the spider was. How long did it take you to capture this image and what exactly did you witness?
3: Okay, so that fishing spider was one that I actually raised in a 10 gallon tank that was half land and half water. So the tank I planted uh, various aquatic little plants that come up out of the water and it simulates a nice little aquatic environment. And in the half of the tank that had water in it, I have a lot of guppies. I've actually been keeping this tank going now for about seven years and the guppies are doing great. And when I sprinkle food on the surface of the water for the guppies, If the fishing spider is hungry, that's when she makes her move. Because what they do is they read the disturbance on the surface of the water just the way an orb spider reads the disturbance in a big web. So the surface of the water, when it's being disturbed by a fish that's picking food off of the surface, the fishing spider will then gallop across the surface without breaking the the surface tension and will grab the fish, right at the surface, and it will sometimes struggle, sometimes there will be a little bit of a struggle at the surface of the water where they sort of thrash around and there's a lot of rolling around on the surface. You think
0: that would drag the spider underwater, but that's okay? The the spider is so buoyant
3: that it doesn't seem to be dragged under very easily, and it must have a very potent venom because the fish is usually um, incapacitated very rapidly. And so then the spider immediately rushes with the fish to some vegetation, and it'll climb up on the vegetation because what it has to do is introduce digestive enzymes into that fish in order to masticate it and slurp down the predigested liquefied food, because it doesn't ingest particulate food. It has to predigest it.
0: <laughs> I love that story. Okay. Uh So often, ants are hailed for their incredible strength and their ability to carry several times their body weight, but spiders sound like they're pretty strong also.
3: Oh, yeah. Spiders are are very strong, Um, and their silk can be extraordinarily strong. There's a lot of figures about how much stronger it is than steel and so on and so forth, but basically, it's a measure of its elasticity and its strength together, which gives it a, a certain toughness. And one of the extraordinary things about orb weavers is that the, the foundation silk around the perimeter of the web and the spokes of the wheel of the web convert 50% of the energy from an insect impact into heat. If it didn't convert it, the insect would be catapulted off of the web. But when you figure an insect, a fast-flying large insect hitting a web at a 90 degree angle, to have that silk be able to convert that energy into heat allows the insect to stick in the web so that the spider can then capture it. So, some of this is being looked at by scientists in order to hopefully design a better airbag, for example, something that convert kinetic energy into heat and it might save your life someday.
0: And you would owe it all to a little spider. Yeah. <laughs> In another great photograph, you refer to a male cellar spider as being chivalrous. Why would you use that phrase?
3: Because he captured a bark scorpion all by himself, and this female cellar spider came over and she kind of w- tapped him with her feet, and he allowed her to partake of this meal that he himself had captured. Of course, In the long run, that probably serves his best interests because a well-fed female is maybe more likely to mate with the male. She's also more likely to produce a lot of eggs. And so her ability to feed on that big meal might uh, give him a better chance of mating and passing his genes on.
0: So it is part of a survival strategy. Yes. You've captured other incidences of food sharing and things that we might think of as being activities that mammals would engage in.
3: Yes, I think that probably the most startling thing I ever saw was a mother vinegroom sharing food with a baby a full four months after the baby had emerged from the maternal burrow. She actively walked over reached down into the baby's burrow after she had captured a cricket. And the baby came up out of the burrow and she shared a meal with that baby. And I thought to myself, whoa, this isn't supposed to happen. These things only happen with warm blooded, uh, furred or feathered creatures. And it really, really shocked me and made me reassess a lot of my preconceived assumptions about what happens.
0: So you've been engaged with doing macro photography for quite some time, and now you have a book out, Amazing Arachnids. Did you have a goal for this book? Did you have a purpose that you wanted this book to achieve in terms of sharing the knowledge you've gathered?
3: Yes. I realized early on that people who were afraid of arthropods, if they got to look at them in a photograph up close... It was a non-threatening experience, and it really helped the people um, appreciate the animals without being afraid of them. And so I decided very early on that it would be a really good thing to be able to share that magical journey of, of down that rabbit hole and see all these incredible things with people so that they could enjoy the arachnids. That way the arachnids win because people aren't, automatically killing them with a shoe or something. And the people win because they they get something out of it that's enjoyable instead of being afraid all the time.
0: Jillian Cole's book is Amazing Arachnids, published by Princeton University Press. You can see a slideshow of some of her amazing images on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Every Friday night in downtown Tucson, a diverse group of bands and DJs have been leading a cumbia dance party at Hotel Congress. It's called El Tambo. Although this style originates in Colombia, these gatherings are helping to make Tucson a creative epicenter for the music. Congress recently hosted the second annual El Tambo Fest, which included the first cumbia summit of the border region. The originator and host of these events is poet and performance artist Logan Phillips, who's also known as DJ Dirty Verbs.
2: cumbia music is a music of resistance and it is a music of celebration at the same time. You know, it comes from enslaved peoples, enslaved African peoples being in resistance, right? And um, dancing la cumbiamba or the circle and coming together when all odds were against it. At its core, cumbia still does that. It still provides people a space for resistance in celebration, uh, lament and joy at the same time. And you kind of hear that in the music. 2018 El Tambo Fest. Woo! Yeah, night one. This is our second year doing El Tambo Fest and our fifth year of doing El Tambo in general. And we are really excited that in our second year of the festival, we are about four times bigger <laughs> than we were last year. All righty, top your right hand. There's that. People started coming out more and more to Friday nights and so we just started calling it El Tambo every Friday. And so El Tambo Fest is a chance to kind of tell the story convene a bigger space, and really put a lot of these musical acts in conversation with each other. All right, we're gonna listen to some border
4: music tonight, and uh, I feel like it's as good as any other kind of music, so here we go.
2: This isn't really something new to Tucson, right? This is something that has always been here. It's completely surreal looking at it, because when when I started, you know, there was no cumbia downtown at all. Like, there's people listening to cumbia everywhere, but none of the clubs downtown were playing Latino music at all.
5: My name is Enrique Garcia Naranjo, a.k.a. DJQ. I kind of grew up with this mentality to push my parents' stuff away from me. So it wasn't until I started hanging out with Logan that I started really paying attention to cumbia, because I was like, what? What is he hear that I've never heard in, like, my time with cumbia? I had been doing sets here and there with just hip-hop or my oldie stuff. It wasn't until I played cumbia that people actually danced to my stuff that I was like, that's the formula. And I got to see like what cumbia can really do to a dance floor. And it was just, it was mind boggling. It's, it's beautiful. It's, sometimes I want to cry, but I'm like, OK, I just got to, I'm getting paid for this. I can't cry.
6: My name is Melina Carter. My DJ name is Humble Lioness. I grew up in a very strong Mexican-oriented family. Cumbia has always been a really big part of my life, but I never thought of it being something that I would play out in a club.
4: The
6: tools that I started to learn as a DJ, I could hear them using those inside the music, and so it just like blew my mind to hear the meeting of the old world and like the new world together. Please give me a big round of applause in welcoming Native Creed for the first time ever performing at Congress. Thank you, guys.
2: It's kind of sad that I've never seen a band from uh, the nation invited to play in a downtown venue ever. Right here at a festival, here and there, at an outdoor stage, maybe Tucson Meet Yourself, but not inside the club. And so that was kind of one of the things that we most wanted to do at the fest was like, let's center this music that is absolutely from here, right, from folks whose land this is. And it really blew us away to see how, what that did in the space, you know, and how folks received it.
6: do something when you're out in a dance party on the res called a, a wireless Circle, where everyone just starts dancing in a circle, which is really cool because no matter where you come in, you just move with the flow and it keeps like the whole dance floor energy moving with the music. And it was really beautiful to see that done inside of Congress.
2: That was the moment that was really, for me, kind of was transcendent and took me out of all the planning and you know, the logistics and all the things when it all kind of fell away and really realized that this thing, like all good art, is really playing with something much more subtle and um, pr- profound than, a, than what it seems on the surface.
6: It feels really beautiful just to be like in the center of Tucson and to have so many people that haven't heard the music come in and get a taste of the culture here in Tucson through the night that we do at Tambo.
5: It feels like it shouldn't work. It's clunky, it's funky, but it just makes you move to it. And I think there's something that's ancestral to that. I think there's just something that grabs your ear and grabs your spirit when you're dancing.
2: In the borderlands, we're kind of at a crossroads right now, while there's more xenophobia and kind of scapegoating going on at a national level. There's also folks like me, like a white kid who grew up on the border. Um, listening to Mexican radio all the time, and really realizing that, you know, that isn't my experience of this place. My experience of this place is a, is a mixed experience, right? And so trying, just trying to hold space for people of all races and all cultures coming together to celebrate this music. It's growing stronger here in Tucson, but it's also, we're just a part of a, a larger wave of National Network of
5: Artists.
0: That feature was produced by Andrew Brown, and it included music from Frontera Boogaloo, Native Creed, and Sonido Cachimbo. You can watch the story you just heard right now on the Arizona Illustrated Facebook page and at azpm.org. Since ancient times, among the first things that people shared were the drum and the story.
4: Hi, my name is Jordan Hill, and I'm a professional Jewish storyteller. And I am here to tell you an Iraqi Jewish story, an old folktale that I find to be quite beautiful. Once upon a time, there lived a king. A king who was beloved by his people. He was wise and compassionate. He listened to everyone, whether they were rich or poor, it didn't matter. And he was old. His days were numbered, and he knew that it was time, in the tradition of his people, to pick a successor. So one evening, he wrote down the name of the next king on a piece of paper. He placed it in an envelope, and he sealed it with wax. And he handed this to his most trusted advisor and asked him to only open it seven days after his passing. And so it was, the days passed on, and the king grew more and more weak, more and more ill, until finally he indeed passed away. And the country went into mourning. People grieved everywhere the loss of their beloved king. And seven days into it, the advisor gathered everyone that he thought of note together in the palace. And with everyone watching, he broke the wax seal. He opened the envelope and pulled out the paper, and his eyes grew wide. Everyone said, who is it? Who's the next king? And the advisor said, the court jester. A stunned silence filled the room. Everyone looked at each other. The court jester, how could he be the king? Most shocked of all was the jester himself who watched the advisor nervously approaching him, carrying the royal crown and the royal robes. He was escorted to the throne and he sat down nervously, unsure what to do. And indeed an awkward period of time began. People would come to the new king with all sorts of pressing concerns and issues. And he did what he knew how to do. He would tell a bad joke. He would sing a silly song. And the people would leave unsatisfied and worried about the future of their country. But the jester could tell things were not working out so well. So as he considered more and more what to do, it occurred to him that he of everyone in the kingdom had spent the most time alongside of the king because the king loved having him by his side in the throne room. And as a jester, wasn't he after all an actor? He could just imitate the king, do what he thought the king would do. And so he decided to give it a shot. The next person who had an issue approached the new king and told him the problem. And the jester thought what the old king would have done and then did his best to act just like that. And amazingly, the person was satisfied. They went away feeling good about the issue. And so he started doing this more and more. And in the days and weeks and months and years to come, the people started to grow respect for this new king. They started to think of him as wise and compassionate having the capability to listen to everyone, no matter who they were. But there was one thing that was a little different about this king. Every now and then, when he had a free moment, he would disappear off to this room in the back of the palace, where he alone had the key. And he would lock himself in that room, and he would do no one knew quite what, sometimes for minutes, sometimes for hours. And everyone just gave him his space. They didn't pester him or bother him about it, though they were curious what he did back there. That was until an ambassador came to the palace, assigned to this kingdom, This ambassador from this far-off land had heard legend of this king, known for all of this wisdom and ability to listen. And the ambassador was a jaded politician and didn't think anyone could be so great. There had to be something. So when he heard about how the king would just disappear sometimes for periods of time, he thought, ah, this is the dark secret here. And he vowed that he would find out what the king went off to do. And so one day he was there in the throne room and he saw the king slipping off out the back door and he decided to follow him. He snuck down passageways, hiding behind corners so as not to be seen. And he watched as the king disappeared into a back room and closed the door. And he went over to the room. He looked through the keyhole and there he saw the king removing the crown, removing his royal robes and placing on himself instead the robes of a jester, the hat of a jester. And he saw the king start jumping around, dancing, singing songs, telling ridiculous jokes. And after doing this for some time, the king stopped panting in front of a mirror and stared at himself, dressed like a jester, and said, Remember, remember, you are not really a king. You are just a fool pretending to be a king. Remember. And seeing this, the ambassador understood. He understood The wisdom of the king. He understood the compassion of the king, and he understood how the king was able to listen fully to absolutely everyone.
0: Jordan Hill is a traveling storyteller who was suggested to us by the Jewish History Museum and the Holocaust History Center in Tucson. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.